I'd love for you to open your Bibles now to 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. We've been talking about radical following in ordinary places. This morning, uh, we were talking about radical following in the home. And then today, uh, this afternoon, we're going to talk about radical following in the public square. And specifically, in a public square inside of an increasingly hostile culture. Uh, I'm not sure how much you know about 1 Peter, but uh, if you know anything, you probably understand why it's the perfect letter in the New Testament uh, to root ourselves in for a conversation like this. It was written to people who were living in times very similar to our times. Uh, About 50 years after Peter wrote this letter, uh, so 50 years after would be A.D. 112, uh, we have the first outbreak of formal persecution against the Christian community outside the city of Rome. Um, when most Christians think of uh, persecution uh, at the hands of the Romans, we, we think of that outbreak under Nero. Um, and you've probably heard sort of semi-apocryphal stories about that, right? That, that Nero wanted to uh, redesign, remodel the city of Rome, so uh, he allowed a part of the city to catch on fire. Then he needed a scapegoat for political cover, so he blamed this new what he thought was a Jewish sect uh, called Christians. And there had been riots uh, between Jews that were following Christ uh, and Jews that were not in Rome back in the 50s. And so it was sort of a, a scapegoat that people would have known. They, they, had, they had initially a bit of a bad reputation in the city because of these riots uh, about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. And, and so there was this outbreak of persecution that most of us think of because that's the one actually that uh, both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were caught up in. Um, Maybe you know that both Paul and Peter were martyred uh, in that brief outbreak of persecution under Nero. But what you might not know is that it was never enforced beyond the city of Rome. So there was no formal persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire actually until A.D. 112. And it happened right here. Um, it, It happened to these people. So Peter here, in 1 Peter, is writing to a group of Christians in uh, what would today be northern Turkey, um, and, but at the time was uh, a province within Asia Minor called Pontus Bithynia. It was the first place that persecution broke out. In AD 112, the emperor Trajan sent a fellow named Pliny the Younger to investigate this growing uh, religion that was becoming known as Christianity. And so many people had come to Christ in the province of Pontus Bithynia that it actually started to change the local economy. By the way, just pause and think of that. Imagine how many people would have to come to Christ for it to change the local economy. Uh, It's quite quite remarkable. So he sent this guy, Pliny the Younger, and uh, you can read about this is all recorded history because Pliny the Younger was uh, actually a man of letters He was a famous writer in the ancient world. And so he wrote a series of letters back to the emperor Trajan detailing his investigation of Christianity. And what he did was he rounded up everybody he could find in that area, a sampling, as it were, of of Christians. And particularly he went after um, those who were identified as leaders of the Christian community. And his report of it is actually kind of chilling. It's very cold-blooded. 
Uh, he says, you know, so I rounded some people up, I tortured them, and uh, asked them a bunch of questions, and, and any who uh, acknowledged Christ, and after two or three opportunities to recant, refused to, I uh, killed. And, and so by means of, of this rigorous investigation, uh, he was able to write back to the Emperor Trajan what Christianity was all about. And, uh, and it, it appears, based on his letters, that he tortured to death uh, several dozen Christians in Pontus Bithynia. But then, interestingly, uh, Pliny also reported back to the emperor that these Christians were fabulous citizens, that uh, they, by and large, worked hard, paid their taxes, and they also had a, a noticeable concern for the poor. So, uh, trade and... When they started persecuting the Christians, it further disrupted the local economy because it turned out a lot of these Christians went into hiding and they were in very important position. Later, sent a letter to Pliny the Younger. Telling so upon second thought, the Emperor Trajan a few months later sent a letter to Pliny the Younger telling him to cease and desist his inquiry into the Christians and leave them be. So that happened in A.D. 112, which is exactly 50 years after the Apostle Peter wrote to these people. So it was these people, or perhaps their children, who went through that persecution. But hear that timeline. There were 50 years of explosive growth, meaning between the time that this letter was first read and the time that Pliny the Younger was dispatched to investigate these Christians, the Christian community grew so fast that it disrupted the Roman economy. So there were 50 years of explosive growth that basically Peter was writing to salvage. Because what was happening in AD 50 was that the Christian community for the first time at the hands of the Romans, the Christians were used to being ill-treated by their sort of elder brother, the, the, the Jewish brother. Most persecution for the first 100 years of Christianity was Jews against fellow Jews who had committed to Christ as Messiah. But now for the first time, Roman Christians are facing persecution from fellow Romans. But at this point, in AD 50, it's mild persecution. Listen to how Tom Schreiner describes it at the moment of this letter, not in AD 112, 50 years prior, when Peter wrote. The only specific suffering noted is discrimination and mistreatment and verbal abuse from former colleagues and families. You picking that up? So mild persecution, if it even deserves that name. Basically just mild social marginalization. That's what was happening in AD 50. But as you well know, mild social discrimination is often enough to make Christians run for cover. Right? It's, that's often enough to get Christians to start hiding out in the basement behind their fortress of canned goods waiting for the rapture. Is it not? And so what Peter is actually saying in this letter is he's saying, do not run into the barn at the first sight of rain. Okay? Hold your ground, be a man, absorb some punishment, and finish the harvest. That's what he's saying. That's, that's what this letter is about in a nutshell. Now, we're going to zoom in on 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17, which is a passage uh, wherein the apostle lays out this sort of game plan, as it were, 
for how to follow Jesus, how to serve Jesus, and how to witness to Jesus in an increasingly hostile culture. Let me read to you the word of the Lord beginning at verse 13, 1 Peter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So I think there are at least 10 principles that we can draw out there with respect to our mandate, thinking about how to be followers of Jesus, right, in ordinary places, how to be a follower of Jesus in the public square in an increasingly hostile culture. I think we can see 10 things. First one comes out of verse 13. Peter says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Or some of your Bibles will have, if you are eager for what is good or eagerly doing good. So our first principle is this. Don't exaggerate cultural opposition. Who is there to harm you if you are eager for doing good? Christians have been known to hyperventilate anytime the, there's a bit of a change in the social environment. We can catastrophize. We can overblow things, right? We can panic. That's the opposite of faith. And so what the apostle here is recommending is a certain faithful perspective. I think we need to hear that in Canada. Uh, there's a, a lot of hysteria, it seems, right now in Canada that is not helpful at all. Uh, part of what's driving that, I think, is our, our fixation with American media. There's an expression uh, that Canadians sneeze every time their cousins south of the border get a cold. Right? We are overly obsessed with what is happening in America. And as a Christian community, that's hurting us right now because our American evangelical cousins are undergoing a trauma, a unique psychological trauma. You know, America is a unique country. We forget that up here in Canada. We often assume that our story is like the American story, just told a little smaller and, and in, in boring pastel colors, perhaps. Right? We're just sort of boring Americans. But that's not at all true. America's a very in the universe. Uh, many of you will probably know that America is actually the only country in the universe that was founded by Christians. Now, now you say, well, what about Canada? Not really. Canada was a compromise between French people and English people. Uh, but America was specifically founded by religious refugees, by Christian refugees fleeing intoleration for being nonconformists, largely in Great Britain. Basically, the founding fathers of America were almost exclusively, there were some Catholics, but almost exclusively Protestants, we would call them today evangelicals, fleeing established churches in European countries. That's a unique history. And so evangelicals have have enjoyed cultural privilege in the United States for their entire history. 
Canadians have never had that experience. Evangelicals, I don't know if you know this, but there are 25 times more evangelicals in America than there are in Canada. Canada has one-tenth the population of America, but America has 25 times the number of evangelical Christians. That tells you a little something about density, saturation, and influence. Evangelicals have never been in charge in Canada. And so we're watching right now our American evangelical cousins in the convulsions of psychological paralysis due to the loss of cultural privilege. And we're feeling the anxiety associated with that, despite the fact that actually in Canada, for us, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. We, of all people, should know that the absence of cultural privilege is not the same thing as the presence of persecution. So we need to tone it down. Now, several American voices are actually making the same case. Ross DeThat, for example, wrote in the New York Times, he said, being marginalized, being sued, losing tax-exempt status, this will be uncomfortable, but we should keep perspective, remember our sins, and nobody should call it persecution. I think that's bang on. What we face here in North America is very different than what our brothers and sisters are facing in other countries. It's very different than what brothers and sisters in North Korea are facing. Very different than what brothers and sisters in China are facing. Right? Our pastors are not being disappeared by the police. Our churches are not being bulldozed. That's what is happening right now in China. And so what's happening to us might be uncomfortable, might be socially awkward, but we should probably not call it persecution. Now, Ross is right, but Ross is an American. And as I mentioned, our situation is very different than the situation down there. Most Canadians would actually be shocked to learn that we enjoy, as Christians here, we enjoy far more rigorous and specific protections under the law with respect to the exercise of our religion. Again, it's an accident of history. American Christians never imagined that they would require legal protection for the exercise of their religion. They were the ones who wrote the Constitution. And so it wasn't hardwired in. Whereas in Canada, as we've said, Canada was established as a compromise between majority British Anglicans and minority French Catholics. So right into our Constitution, the French insisted that protections for the free exercise of religion be written in. You have tremendous legal protections as an evangelical because French Catholics assumed that Anglicans would want to wipe them out. And so literally, written, listen to what's in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, enshrines what are considered supra or over. They're basically uh, the highest level of, of rights against which no law can be made. So listen, religious freedom in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is considered a human right. Listen to how it opens. Charter of Rights and Freedoms begins with these words. Whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. P.S. There is nothing even remotely like that in the American Constitution. Okay? Charter goes on to state, everyone has the following fundamental freedoms. A, freedom of conscience and religion enshrined in law. B, 
freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other freedoms, uh, the other media of communication. C, freedom of peaceful assembly. And D, freedom of association. So according to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, against which no law may be passed, you are allowed to believe whatever you want to believe. And not only that, you're allowed to express whatever you want to express. And you're allowed to publish whatever you want to publish through the press, through the internet. You can gather on Sunday morning for church. You can put your sermons on the internet. You can express yourself on Facebook. That is all protected under Canadian law through the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Those are your freedoms guaranteed. Now, several years ago, the Canadian Supreme Court adjudicated a dispute that further specified this, freedom of religion is the right to entertain such religious beliefs as a person chooses, the right to declare religious beliefs openly without fear of hindrance or reprisal, and the right to manifest religious belief by worship and practice or by teaching and dissemination. Now, as with all charter rights, it goes on to say these rights are subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, meaning you don't have the legal freedom to be rude. You don't have the legal freedom to harass other people. But you have the freedom to believe what you want, to say what you want, to write, to publish your thoughts. That is protected by law. As, as has been explained to me I, through TGC, somebody told me today that they don't know what TGC is, and I, I didn't ever explain it. TGC is the Gospel Coalition. And uh, through the Gospel Coalition, uh, you've probably noticed um, that we've published a few articles recently on uh, religious liberty law. We've been interacting a little bit with uh, one of the constitutional lawyers for the four C's. Uh, here's a decent summary. In Canada, the average pew sitter and the average pastor has greater legal protection but faces far greater social antagonism than their counterparts in the United States. Meaning we have far less cultural sympathy, but far more formal legal protection. Most Canadians don't know that. Here's the point. There are a few people. Here's what's happening in Canada. There are a few stories that go around social media, that get on the Internet, and it starts to feel to us like our permission is shrinking in the public square. Right now, there are two groups that are really starting to feel the pinch. Uh, one group in particular, and that's doctors. You know this, right? Uh, Christian physicians right now in Canada are having a hard time. Uh, they face the real possibility of employment discrimination as a result of failure to refer for abortion and for medical assistance in dying. Uh, it is entirely possible that if a Christian doctor fails to refer on those issues, that whoever uh, did not receive that medical referral could file a complaint with the College of Physicians, which could result in formal uh, employment discipline. Here's how, this, how we anticipate this will be adjudicated. Here's something you should know. As of yet in Canada, no such complaint has been filed, meaning not a single doctor in Canada has faced employment discrimination for failure to refer on abortion or medical assistance in dying. But we anticipate that it will happen. In Canada, uh, as it's been explained to me, laws are generally made vague, 
and rough and clunky for a reason. Uh, because legislators don't want the burden of specificity. It, it makes it harder to get reelected. So they make laws uh, clunky and vague, and then they wait for lawsuits to happen, work their way through the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court decides the issue of balance. So what we anticipate that will happen is at some point a, do- a formal complaint will be registered against a physician for failure to refer. That Christian physician may then countersue the college for religious discrimination under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That court case will make its way through the courts, eventually land at the Supreme Court, where the issue of balance will be adjudicated. But here's my point. There has not yet been a single formal complaint against a physician for failure to refer on those two issues. And yet all of us are reacting as if our permission in the public square has been greatly truncated. No, it has not. You still continue to enjoy massive and historically unprecedented permission and extraordinarily generous protections under law, right? So here's the question. Who is there to harm you for being an active public Christian in the country of Canada? That's the question. That's the question Peter was asking a bunch of people in Pontus Bithynia who did not enjoy these legal protections. But that's the question he's asking you today. Who is there to harm you? Right? Why are you hiding in your basement? Why are you going silent? Right? Who is there to harm you? He's saying, stay engaged, don't hide, and be active and obvious in doing good. That's the second principle we can pull out of the passage. Be active and obvious in doing good. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Peter's argument seems to be that if we as Christians are known as people who are committed to good things, we ought to be able to keep this window of permission open for a fairly long time, right? If we, the, now, historically, that proved exactly right. When persecution did break out in Pontus Bithynia in AD 112, it lasted for less than a year because Christians were such useful citizens, right? Historically, we know that actually the, the Christian commitment to good deeds, to social work in the community, eventually won over the Roman Empire. I don't know if you're familiar with Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark's not a Christian, but for whatever reason, he's fascinated with Christianity. He considers the, ri- the rapid rise of Christianity to be the greatest unexplained historical marvel. Again, he's not a Christian. He writes so favorably about Christians that he was asked once in an interview, are you a Christian? And he says, sadly, I am incapable of belief. Rapid rise of Christianity to be the not a Christian. And yet, he considers the rapid rise of Christianity to be the greatest unexplained historical phenomenon. Right? I mean, think about it. Christianity was basically a Jewish sect in A.D. 60, right? With a few thousand members. By A.D. 200, it had basically taken over the Roman Empire. How did that happen? So Stark traces it. And he comes to the conclusion that it mostly happened during two great plagues, meaning it wasn't like Christianity enjoyed 15% growth for 87 consecutive years. He said, no, it appears relatively unchanged except for during the two great Roman plagues. There were two great Roman plagues. They happened 150 years apart. 
Uh, it, it, most of us don't know a ton of Roman history, but we have seen the movie Gladiator, right? This is a men's retreat. I'm going to assume you've seen the movie Gladiator, right? It would be a sin not to have. Um, but one of the details in the movie Gladiator that wasn't true, you remember the, the emperor Marcus Aurelius? In the movie Gladiator, he's smothered by his son Commodus. Do you remember that with a pillow? In history, actually, Marcus Aurelius died in one of the great Roman plagues. The, both Roman plagues had a mortality rate of about 30%, meaning 30, 30% of the Roman Empire died twice within 150 years. Isn't that amazing? They didn't have any, any of the things that, that we have today, hospitals, you know, penicillin, all that. They didn't have any of that, antibiotics. So 30% mortality rate. To put that in perspective, they say that the mortality rate right now with the coronavirus is between 1% and 2%, but they actually say it's significantly less than 1% because the majority of cases with the coronavirus never get reported. So just to put that in perspective, right? So 1% mortality versus 30% mortality. Imagine, you know, so I live in Aurelia, population roughly 30,000, maybe 40,000, but that's like 10,000 people dying in a plague. And then 150, 150 years later, another 10,000 people dying in a plague. And what happened was, this is all historically documented. Those two plagues were the death knell of Roman paganism. Before those two plagues, the vast majority of Romans were pagans. After those two plagues, almost no Romans were pagans. Why? Fascinating. What happened was, during those two plagues, every Roman with money left the cities and ran to their country estates, right? Because the cities were where people were in closest contact. That was where it was spreading fast, just like today in China, right? It's, it's in these compact cities where the virus is, is really spreading. So every Roman with money was trying to get out of the city. There were traffic jams of Romans leaving the cities. And while the Romans were all in these traffic jams heading out, the Christians from the countryside were all marching in. They literally sang songs of faith to Jesus while they marched into quarantine zones. There were also all kinds of rumors that Christians were immune from the plague. Because what we, now, we, now we have, you know, Rodney Stark, again, is not a Christian, so he has all these scientific explanations. The Christian death rate during the plague was significantly lower than 30%. And, of course, everyone was talking about it. Why? Are Christians immune from the plague? Is Jesus magic? What's going on? Rodney Stark says, actually, what the Christians did is they were committed to basic nursing. And he said, what we've discovered now is that if you change people's bed sheets and you spoon them broth while they're in the plague and, you, and you're, you know, wiping them down with cold cloths to reduce the fever, right, and you're removing all the filth from their home and you're burying those who died in the next room, basic nursing and sanitation reduces mortality rates by two-thirds. But the rumor went around that no Christians died during the plague. Now, that's not true because Christians actually tell tons of stories of their people who died nursing Roman pagans during the plague. But it made a remarkable difference. In every single neighborhood where Christians showed up, the death rate went down. There are stories that after the second Roman plague, former pagans... See, because... I don't know if you, the, the priests in paganism also, because they had money, they all abandoned the cities during the plague. Then after the plague, they came back. And there are stories about newly converted 
Roman pagans who are now Christians, because they were nursed during the plague, going to the temples, dragging out the pagan priests into the streets and beating them to death for abandoning them and for lying to them about their so-called gods. Now, I'm not saying that's an appropriate response for a new Christian, (laughs) right? Obviously, there was some sanctification that needed to happen. But I'm just saying, that's how, you know, Rodney's, this is Rodney Stark's analysis, right? You and I would want to say some things about the Holy Spirit. You and I would want to say some things about the power of the gospel. You and I would want to say a bunch of things that Rodney Stark doesn't give a rip about. But it's hard to deny the fact that our commitment to doing good in large part, in great measure, was used by God to take over the Roman Empire. Now, here's my question. Makes you wonder, doesn't it, what God's doing right now in China and Iran? What are the two countries hardest hit by this, this coronavirus? China and Iran. Let's go back in time. Wind back the clock six months. Six months ago, where were you hearing that the Christian church was the fastest growing Christian church in the world? Where were you hearing? China and Iran. Has God orchestrated an opportunity? Is, is this in some providential way an engineered reality? I don't know. I don't want to get into those weird mysteries of providence, but I will say this. If Christians do there as Christians have done throughout history, at the end of this, the emperor may once again have no clothes. What God did to Roman paganism, he may do again to Chinese communism. He may do again to Islam for doing good. That's what we're saying there. And do not be afraid, right? That's, did I skip one? Yes, I did. Adjust expectations. So, so in the same way that we don't want to overestimate, the Apostle Peter knows that from time to time there will be accelerations of cultural opposition. And I mentioned Pontius Bithynia. A couple of years ago, Rod Dreher wrote a book uh, called The Benedict Option. Quick show of hands if you read the book or at least read the article that gave birth to the book or at least thought favorably about buying the book and then decided not to buy the book. Good. All right, a couple. Good. F- fascinating conversation. Basically, what, what Rod Dreher was saying is that there's been a change in the cultural environment, right? We used to enjoy cultural privilege. Now, all of a sudden, we're facing the prospect of employment discrimination and all these other things. How should we respond? Uh, His suggestion was the Benedict option. In essence, retreat and restoration. Uh, The the Benedictine monasteries were where Christianity was preserved during the the Dark Ages, so to speak. So he's saying, let's cluster in small communities, let's break off contact from the world, and uh, let's preserve what is beautiful about Christianity until the mood of the culture changes. It was, in essence, an an argument for isolation. So, of course, there were a variety of counter-arguments. Uh, one uh, counter-argument was called the Babylon option. They're all Bs, right? Benedict option, Babylon option. Uh, that was, uh, you know, from Jeremiah where it says, you know, build homes, plant vineyards, get married, live in Babylon, seek the welfare of the city. So that was one. Uh, I wrote one uh, called the Bithynian option because I'm a geek. Uh, it didn't get very well uh, or didn't get as well read as the, uh, the Benedict option. I didn't get a book deal. Uh, but what I was trying to argue was actually that there is a clue for how to do this from Scripture. Christians have, uh, historians have long been fascinated with the history of Pontus Bithynia. Uh, for whatever reason, Pontus Bithynia has been like the, 
the canary in the coal mine. People still use that expression. Back in the day, uh, Scottish miners used to go down into the mines with a canary inside a canary cage because I guess canaries are very susceptible to gas. And so if you're down in the mine and your canary dies, you know you got to get out of there, right? The point being canaries die first. And for whatever reason, when persecution was going to break out in the Roman Empire, it always broke out in Pontus Bithynia first. But here's some interesting observations. So we've, we've studied for years why, why there were so many outbreaks of persecution in Pontus Bithynia between basically A.D. 112 and A.D. 312. Why were there so many? It seemed like every 50 years there was an outbreak of persecution. Why? Lots to be learned by studying those outbreaks. One of the things you notice is that in the vast majority of them, the persecution was narrow meaning they didn't round up Christians generally, they rounded up leaders. So in one outbreak of persecution, they just rounded up all the bishops. Now, don't think pointy hat bishop, that was Middle Ages. Bishop at, the, at that point just mean a pastor in charge of two or three congregations, right? Isn't, that, isn't the, the pastor of the church, the Harvest Church in Bracebridge, that guy? So be grabbing that guy, and, and, and they, they chopped them, all these guys, these bishops, they chopped them up into little pieces and threw their bodies in the river, as a warning to, to Christians. But here's the other thing you notice. In addition to the fact that it, it was usually very narrow, targeted mostly at the leaders, it never lasted very long. It's difficult, it's hard to find an episode of persecution in Pontus Bithynia that lasted for more than two years. Most of them lasted six months to 18 months. Because again, Christians were valuable citizens. So here's the point that Peter seems to try, to try to make. He's saying there are going to be huge gaps between short outbreaks of persecution. So don't exaggerate, but do be prepared for a change in the air. Look at verse 14. He, he adjusts his tone a little bit here. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Right? So in general, don't exaggerate. In general, just do good. Doing good will keep the windows open for as long as possible. But then, you know, when persecution comes, it will be relatively brief. Think, think about that persecution we talked about, the one that started in AD 112. There was a 50-year ramp up, a 50-year ramp up to a persecution that lasted for less than a year. Meaning, it was possible for the Christian church to huddle in their basement for 50 years, missing opportunities for harvest, all to avoid a persecution that involved a relatively small number of people for an incredibly short period of time. Do you see the insanity of that? That's what Peter is saying. Now, right now in our context, we are feeling a ramp up. That's what we're all reacting to. We, our road has been slightly downhill. It's been the easy road, right? If anything, we've had a little bit of momentum. Now, all of a sudden, there's a slight incline. It's just a wee bit tough out there, isn't it? Just a wee bit tough. Could be a 50-year ramp up to an eight-month persecution that will probably result in my death, but not yours. So chill out. <laughs> right? That's what, that's what Peter is saying. Right now in Canada, the only people, as I said, who are facing anything that deserves to be called persecution are doctors, lawyers, and teachers. It's employment discrimination. Doctors, lawyers, and teachers. So let's be aware of that. Let's pray for those folks. But let's not exaggerate the situation. And let's not be afraid. That's the fourth thing Peter says out there. Do not be afraid. Verse 14b, have no... ...that you don't actually believe the things that Jesus said. Because Jesus said... 
Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Do you believe that? Jesus said that. People who believe that then are not paralyzed by the potential of persecution. Fifthly, Peter tells them to set apart Christ as Lord. Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's, a, that's the hardest part of the verse to translate. If you have three different translations in your, in your home, you probably have three different options there. It's the Greek word hagiasete. Um, the only other place maybe you're familiar with that is from the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. It's a bit of a, word, a weird word there. It means, it means to make, make Christ Lord, make him the biggest thing, make him the centerpiece of your life. See how large and in charge he is, and then from that place, look at all your troubles. You know what's interesting? When we were safe in this culture, we made God small, didn't we? Like when we were safe, when there were no challenges, didn't we turn God into some dopey old grandpa type? Right? Some sort of Santa figure who gives us candy and rubs our head but has no moral demands, you know, and is asleep most of the time. You know, don't wake him up. And if he does wake up, just, you know, he'll give you some candy. Isn't that who we turned God into? That God is not the God of the Bible, right? C.S. Lewis, talking about God, says that he's not safe, right? He's not a safe lion, but he is good. See, now that things are dangerous, we're going back to the Bible saying, no, wait, who is God again? And we're discovering that actually God is sovereign. God is holy. We're starting to say things again we didn't say 20 years ago, like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Remember we used to say that? Big God theology is on a comeback, thanks be to God. Sixthly, Peter tells them to always be prepared Verse 15 says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Christianity is always going to rub up against the common worldview in particular ways, right? So they ask different questions about Christianity in China than they do in North America. They ask different questions about Christianity in the United States than they do in Canada. Every culture has a particular rub with Christianity. And so part of evangelism is thinking about the particular questions that your friends are likely to ask as they make their way to Jesus. To, this is street-level apologetics, right? And to do this, all you need to know is you need to know your faith and you need to know your friends. It's as simple as that, right? As apologetics always sounds more complicated than it is, and certainly we can make it more complicated than it is, but in its essence, it's just that, knowing your faith and knowing your friends so that you can anticipate their objections and be prepared to deal with them. While there are some outliers, in, in, in my experience, there are about seven. We're about to do a series at my church. We're just finishing up Daniel, and then we're going to do a series called Ten Questions. Ten questions you need to be able to handle in order to talk to your friends about Jesus, right? Now, I mean, just, I just decided to list the top seven for sake of time. Here are the questions you're going to get asked in Canada, guaranteed. Aren't all religions basically the same? Because haven't our kids grown up on this, this steady diet of, you know, pluralism and relativism and everybody is all the same? And 
Of course, it's, you know, it's absolute nonsense, and it's offensive to anyone who's religious, religious, regardless of the religion. It's offensive to Muslims, Hindus, Jews, Christians. It's offensive to anyone with a brain, and yet, nevertheless, that's the common doctrine out there. All religions are basically the same. All right, can you handle that? Can you point out the basic differences? Number two, isn't the Bible filled with contradictions? I, uh, I did my undergrad degree at uh, York University in classics and religious studies, and uh, so, as York University is an interesting place, most of the students in the religious studies department are either Jewish or Muslim. I was one of the few Christians there. And, uh, and York University might be the most Jesus-hating university on the face of the earth. Uh, like, it, 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 it's, it's very odd. So, I, I, I got a crash course in, uh, you know, Canadian apologetics, street-level apologetics. And one of the most common questions I was asked by first-year York University students was, isn't the Bible filled with contradictions? After which they usually wanted to, like, slam something on the ground and moonwalk, like, away, as if they've just blown my faith out of the water. Isn't the Bible filled with contradictions? Whoa. And here was always my answer. Can you name one? No. But they've heard somewhere on the internet or they've heard somewhere that the Bible is filled with contradictions. And you say, and you start probing, well, what kind of, what are you talking about? Well, wouldn't it say like, maybe it's sometimes, it'll say like, um, you know, that, that maybe, uh, you know, I, I just can't think of one. And you, and you start probing, and they, aren't there differences in the manuscripts? Like, doesn't maybe one manuscript say this and one manuscript say that? Of course, it's easy to research this kind of stuff. You know, the vast majority of these so-called textual variations are the switch from he to Jesus, meaning in a manuscript, it might say he, he did this, he went to the changed a few of those to Jesus. That's the vast majority of textual variations in the New Testament. That's not a problem for my faith. Is it for yours? So when you actually start digging around in these things, they're just, they're simple answers. Isn't the Bible homophobic? That's the third question you get a lot. Isn't the Bible sexist? Which is fascinating. Because remember, I mentioned Rodney Stark's not a Christian. One of his chapters, he's got two books. One's called The Rise of Christianity. The other's called The Triumph of Christianity. The Triumph of Christianity is basically the academic version. It's very long. It's like 600 pages. The Rise of Christianity was the popular version. It's about 260 pages. You should buy it. One of the chapters in the long version, The Triumph of Christianity, is the treatment of women. Stark's argument was that Christianity revolutionized the approach to gender and the treatment of women. In, in, and I don't want to get too far off track here, but in Greek society, I don't know if you know this, in Greek society, most women were never allowed even in the front part of the house. They were basically slaves in their own home. In Roman society, a man could have his wife killed on the suspicion of adultery. A man had the right to expose any child his wife had that he didn't want. Suppose he wanted a son and she had a daughter. The man had full legal rights to take that child and expose it. In Roman society, a man was discouraged from having sex with his wife too often. A Roman man was told, only have sex with your wife when you're trying to produce an heir. Otherwise, have sex with your slaves, prostitutes, and young boys. Having sex with young boys was not considered homosexuality in Roman culture because the young boys dressed up as girls. That was normal sexuality in the Roman Empire. And now along comes the Apostle Paul, and he tells men in 1 Corinthians 
they can't have sex with prostitutes. That's why that's in the Bible. We read that verse and we're like, does that really need to be there? That's awkward when we're working through the Bible with the youth group. And we're like, okay, tonight's lesson, don't have sex with prostitutes. Does that need to be said? In the Roman world, that needed to be said. That was life-changing. You had men who'd been Christians for decades and had never heard that. So it completely revolutionized the, the, the treatment of women. In, in 1 Corinthians 7, the apostle Paul tells a man that he has to give to his wife her conjugal rights, which means a man is told he has to have sex with his wife whenever she would like it. Historians refer to that as the most radical thing ever said about sex in the ancient world. The idea that a woman had sexual rights. No one had ever said that ever. So treatment of women, boy, we got a good answer for that one. Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? That's a good conversation. You'll get asked that. Hasn't science disproven Christianity? What does that mean? You need to be able to answer that. Would a loving God really condemn people to an everlasting punishment in hell? You'll get asked that. Now, here's the good news. You don't need to read five books by Daniel Dennett or Richard Dawkins in order to answer those questions. You know what you need to do? Read your Bible. When I get questions from folks in my church, they're witnessing to a friend or a colleague, and they need help, they've hit a roadblock, almost inevitably the answer they're looking for is not in a book by Richard Dawkins. It's, it's not in Signature of the Cell. It's not in some complicated science book. It's in the Bible, meaning they're saying, where does it say in the Bible that thing about like God's design for sexuality and certain types of sex that are outside the line? Where is that? Where, they're basically asking, where's the holiness code? Where, where, does it, where's the, the, where does it say in the Bible that actually slave trading is an abomination to God? Where, where is that one again? Where, where does it say in the Bible what it says about gender? Where does it say that unbelievers go to hell? Where, where is that? Those are the sorts of questions. So to be prepared is to know your friends and to know your faith. Peter also implies here that it would be super helpful if you were an interesting person. If you were living a noteworthy life, he says that in verse 15. Inspire curiosity, that's our seventh principle. He says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, right? The, the, the Bible assumes that you are interesting and that, that there's something about you that looks different than the culture. Here's, here's what's interesting. Again, I'm, I'm old enough that that I've seen things blow in and then, praise God, blow out of the church. I am so thankful right now that attractional church is on the wane. What a stupid idea that was. Uh, this, the whole, like, seeker nonsense, you know, attractional church is just seeker church 2.0. But there was this idea in the 80s and 90s that if we could just narrow the gap between us and the culture... If we could just get rid of a few things they thought were funky about Christianity, you know, we'll keep the basics, right? But we'll narrow the gap between us and culture. It will make it easier for people to hop on over. Except here's what happens when you narrow the gap. Here's what happens when people go to church and hear Beyonce songs for worship and, and then hear a sermon that sounds very similar to the Oprah episode they watched yesterday. Here's what happens. They wonder, why am I getting up at 7.30 in the morning on a Sunday to listen to Beyonce and Oprah? I have that at home. Here's a funny thing. Turns out the gap is good for the gospel, Right? took us 30 years to figure that out. 
Christians should be thinking of ways that we can be weird. Weird in a useful way. I'm not talking Right? Five years ago, you know, Jesus didn't tap. That wasn't helpful. Right? I'm talking about weird. I'm sorry if there's a pastor in the room with that T-shirt on right now. This is why you wear something over your T-shirts, right? I'm talking weird in ways that are consistent with Scripture, but inconsistent with the culture. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about things like this, getting married and staying married. I'm sure you've heard that, the, that in our culture right now, people are getting married later and later and later, and nobody's done the math and figured out that this probably relates to our declining fertility rates. Getting married and staying married. You know, there was a lie that went around about 12 years ago that the Christian divorce rate was the same as the secular divorce rate. Do you remember? Did anybody hear that? It was devastating. People were so upset. Then a lady wrote a book where she actually dug into that and found out that it was all based on a survey flaw. They did selective surveying, most of it in the southern United States. You know what's funny about the southern United States? If you own a pair of cowboy boots and live within 10 miles of a Chick-fil-A, you say that you're a Christian. When they sorted with a second question, have you attended church in the last four weeks, they discovered a separation in the divorce rate that was north of 30%. Right? So here's a way you can look different than your neighbors. Get married and stay married. Here's another one. Have and enjoy babies. You you probably um, saw the book, What to Expect When No One is Expecting that came out about three years ago, there's a massive decline in the birth rate in Western society, in, in Europe and North America. Nobody's having babies anymore. But you know, interestingly, you, you know the two groups that are still having babies? Muslim fundamentalists and evangelical Christians. Interestingly, his last chapter, and the guy who wrote the book's not a Christian. Uh, I think he, he like nominally identifies as, as something, but he, I mean, he's not an evangelical Christian. His last chapter is called The Meek Shall Inherit the Earth. Uh, the most recent Pew Research study on future says that the future is explicitly more religious than less religious for the simple reason that non-religious people don't have babies. You want to be different than your friends? Have and love babies. Here's a third one you could do. Live below your means. Tithe, save, give. That'll get to the attention of your neighbors because your neighbors in Canada apparently are spending 106% of what they earn in every year. I mean, think about it. If, if you tithe, if you save, and, and then if you even, like, leave a little margin there for spontaneous generosity, means you'd be living on, like, 80% of your income, right? That's going to look different. That's going to be something you're going to have to explain to your coworkers, right? Serving selflessly, here's another way you can be weird. Worshiping faithfully in the same church year after year after year. That's all weird, Right? Do that stuff, and they're going to ask you why, and when they do, you tell them about Jesus. It's just that simple. Be weird, answer questions, point to Jesus, done. But, Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect. That's the eighth principle there. Be gentle and respectful. Always being prepared, this is verse 15, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's tough, isn't it? It, it looks to me right now, it seems to me anyway, that evangelicalism is kind of divided between these two camps. On the one hand, we've got folks who are so cowardly and so compromised that they look absolutely the same as their non-Christian neighbors. Nobody knows they're Christians. Nobody cares. But then on the other hand, 
We've got all these courageous and convictional folks who are so nasty and so unpleasant that nobody wants to have anything to do with them. Neither of those approaches is very helpful. We need to be like Jesus here, right? We need to study the Christ of the Gospels who was always full of grace and truth, who could say to a woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, who would eat and drink with sinners, calling them to repentance. And then ninthly, Peter tells his people here to be very careful to maintain their integrity. This one, too, is often neglected. Verse 16, Peter says, Do all this having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Nothing takes the steam out of a church's witness like a good old-fashioned pastoral scandal. Right? Nothing sets back your witness to a friend more than the revelation that you've been cheating on your wife or not paying your taxes. The best service you can do to your gospel witness is an unfailing commitment to your own sanctification and holiness. And then lastly, Peter tells them to endure suffering should that be God's will. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Again, he's coming back full circle. He's saying, be willing to absorb a few punches, brothers. If that's what it takes to get the job done. We're so safety obsessed. We're so spoiled by the privilege we've enjoyed in culture that for the first time when it's a little hard out there, we all think it's time to cave. We all think it's time to go down to the basement. Time to start building your fortress of canned goods. Peter said, no, no, come on. Absorb a few punches for Jesus' sake. Can you do that? He makes the appeal in the very next verse, verse 18. He says, for Christ, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So to bring you to God, Jesus absorbed a few punches, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. Jesus absorbed some punishment on your behalf. Jesus wore the crown of thorns. Jesus drank the cup to the dregs. Jesus carried the cross. So now must you. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It means to press through some violence. Right? We've become such a weak culture. We have no category. We're not sure that verse is even in the Bible. Press through some violence. But Jesus said that. Matthew eleven twelve. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Do you even have a category for that? Love what Matthew Henry says here, the old Puritan commentator back in the day. He said, the violent take it by force. They who will have an interest in the great salvation are carried out towards it with a strong desire, will have it upon any terms, and not think them hard, nor quit their hold without a blessing. We used to talk that way about the Christian life. We used to say that the Christian life was a fight. I don't know if you've ever read the story of Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress uh, was, until recently, I don't know if it still is, but it was at one point the most 
read book in English other than the Bible. Uh, when the Puritans came over to North America from England, it said that there were only two books on the first boat, the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, everybody used to read Pilgrim's Progress. It was basically a giant analogy of the Christian life. That's, and it's the, none of the symbolism is hard to get at. The main character is a pilgrim who has to walk to the celestial city, and his name is Christian, right? Like, you don't need to have been to seminary to figure this stuff out. It's real basic stuff. But so this guy, Christian, is told by a character named Evangelist to flee the city of destruction, right? I'm, all the symbolism right at the surface here. Shortly into his journey, just a short way into his journey, he comes to this place called the House of Interpreter. It actually represents the church and the things you're supposed to learn in church. In the House of Interpreter, he sees a bunch of visions that were given to equip him for the totality of his journey. In one of those visions, he sees a beautiful castle up on a hill, right? You can figure out what that represents. And he asks the interpreter, who represents the pastor, he says, can I go there? And the interpreter doesn't answer right away. He just points out to him a valley that leads down before leading up towards the castle. And he sees there that the way to the castle is actually guarded by a gauntlet of soldiers. And there's a lineup of men considering making the attempt to the celestial city. And they're all wringing their hands. And then finally, Christian sees one brave, stout man go up to the man at the desk and say, write down my name. And then he takes up a sword and he hacks his way through the gauntlet of soldiers, taking many grievous wounds, but finally winning his way to the gates of the celestial city. Whereupon he is welcomed inside, and Christian hears a voice from inside the castle which says, Come in, come in, eternal glory shalt thou win. That's how we used to talk about the Christian journey. We understood that it was a slog, it was a war, it was a battle. We used to warn each other, as Peter is doing here, that there are no easy roads to the celestial city. There is just this road and these dangers, but beyond that, glory, beauty, and Jesus forevermore. That's how we used to talk. That is the walk of faith, my brothers. That is the road to heaven, and this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this warning in Scripture uh, that there is a battle. There's a fight. We have to be careful, Lord, not to exaggerate the dangers. We have to be careful to make hay while the sun shines. We have to seize our full permission, but we also have to be prepared to absorb some punishment, for we do follow a crucified Savior. So, Lord, Help us as a group of men to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has now taken his seat at the right hand of God the Father. Help us to follow him, to take up our cross and follow him wherever you may lead us, we ask in Jesus' name.